from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. I'm Craig Sauer, Senior Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. Today's guest is Chuck Adcock, the Executive Vice President at FSU Credit Union. Adcock has worked at the Credit Union for 23 years, starting out as a part-time teller and rising to his current position. Adcock was recently named a Credit Union Rockstar for his work at FSU Credit Union in a special issue of Credit Union Magazine sponsored by Fiserv. He led efforts to establish a financial opportunity center in an economically distressed neighborhood, helped establish a credit union service organization called iDrive Lending, and is an in-demand lecturer on financial literacy in his community. Adcock recently talked by phone with my CUNA colleague, Bill Merrick. Um, can, you, can you take me through your progression at the credit union? Yeah, um, you know, part of it was being a poor college student. So early on in my career, it was every time I could get an advancement um, in terms of a, uh, an opportunity to make a few more, you know, nickels or quarters back then, an hour, uh, it, it made sense. So I went from being a teller to the uh, to a member service clerk where I did titles and new accounts, uh, did that for about six months and moved into collections. Um, at the time, I, I was getting my major at FSU in criminology. I felt like collections was really a place to right the world's wrongs. Um, and so really got into that, spent about three years as a collections, ultimately becoming the collections manager, and then um, had a chance for the credit union. Somewhere along those lines, they, they said they'd pay for the rest of my school my last two years if I'd stick around afterwards. Uh, and work for the credit union, but I had to change my major to business. So over to the College of Business I went, which took me into operations and lending of the credit union uh, after my time in collections. And I spent the, the, the rest of my career has been on the lending side, uh, moving into a, a vice president role of sales and service, um, kind of getting in on that first wave of risk-based lending in the mid to late 90s. Um, and then the sales concept of moving from being an order taker into into actually growing the credit union and just kind of camped out in, in lending from that point forward. Although, you know, the con- the constraints were VP of sales and service, but that meant the loan department fell under me. That ultimately turned into the COO and then now in the last couple of years, the EVP role. What served you well as you navigated that path? Do you, do you have any certain keys to success that you look back on? Yeah, you know, I've had a couple really neat milestones, and I talk to people a lot of times about my career, and, and some of them will say, you know, that's pretty unique. It's a different path than you traditionally hear. Um, at the time, we had a CEO who I think um, was willing to be really progressive when maybe progressive wasn't quite as in vogue as it is today. And so I had the opportunity to go off to quite a few schools with regards to sales training, some through CUNA Mutual, some through outside the industry. Um, and, and I think that really started to open my eyes on, on a different way of doing things. Um, I was introduced to lending solutions in the late 90s when it was just getting started, and that really fit for some reason with me, and I ultimately went to work for them from 2003 to 2006, where I, 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 and that's one of those other milestones, is being able to work alongside their group um, allowed me to consult in credit unions all over the country, 
um, and get to see some really neat things and some really awful things. Uh, but it, it was able, it, those were all opportunities for me to bring what I saw back to FSU Credit Union and kind of piece together what we really enjoyed. So, so being able to understand the opportunities that exist by way of sales, but also having a little more aggressive stance on underwriting kind of propelled me into a spot that, that allowed me, I think, to move up. Yeah. And, and you've, you've become a, a sought-after speaker about financial literacy. What sparked your interest in this? You know, um, I think really, and it's a little cliche, but there's some truth to it still, is that early in my career, helping members, and I'm going to say in the olden days, which makes me recognize I'm getting old, <laughs> is, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun to sit there at the desk and really intimately understand a person's financial situation and, you know, help them restructure debt or help them, uh, you know, sometimes just fix the, the leaky roof or whatever it was. And, and so it was, there was a quick understanding I had is, is that most people don't talk a lot about financial literacy. There was no high school coursework back in those days. And even in college, I think my biggest exposure to financial literacy, if you will, was a real estate finance course I took that just taught you how to compute ROIs. So even at the collegiate level, people weren't talking about FICO scores and the importance of it. And you kind of had what your parents had had shared with you in terms of taking care of your credit and having good credit, not too much, and being careful with credit cards. And I really started to just realize how many, I call them myths, you know, I, in my presentations, I call it mama myths. It's those myths that your parents told you to instill a little fear in you, but they really weren't completely accurate. And and then those get kind of swirled around when you're talking to your neighbor and your coworker, and you know, and you've just asked a few probing questions. Just people really didn't understand the finances, and somewhat to some extent, as an industry, we made it that way uh, by being slightly confusing on purpose. And uh, and it just kind of sparked this interest. Where here I am on the campus of a, a major university where education and, and, and you know, kind of um, uh, just teaching are, are obviously the main source of what, what's done on campus. And it just felt like the, the members we were serving weren't even really getting that benefit. So um, we launched probably in the late 90s, I would say, a uh, just kind of a crusade to say, hey, we're available to come teach and, and speak on financial literacy. And that's really evolved over almost 20 years now to be um, – you know, I probably speak maybe 35 to 50 times per semester at wow. FSU and TCC and some of the high schools, as well as in some public settings. And that's not counting the consulting work that I do with other credit unions where they bring me in to, to work with their staff. So um, so I think it was just kind of recognizing a need that there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Internet was becoming a thing. And then, of course, that had misinformation. And it was just an opportunity, I think, to put some finer points on on uh, on the financial side of things that, that allowed people to have some aha moments to really say, oh, I can be financially successful. Where do people struggle the most when it comes to making good financial decisions? You know, that's interesting. I probably would answer that question differently 10 years ago, but as we fast forward to today, I think there's kind of a sense of entitlement, and we could probably get on a really deep <laughs> discussion about that in terms of the entire United States right now, but but I think there's a sense of entitlement that we see, and we see it across, you know, we're fortunate enough as a university credit union to see 
folks in starting their adult lives and then even the folks that serve them that are, you know, tenured professors. But I don't see a real difference anymore between that sense of entitlement. And so, you know, I want the newer car. I deserve the newer car. And, you know, leather used to be a luxury in a car, and now it's a given, and Bluetooth was a luxury, and now it's standard option. And, and as you start seeing this escalation, it just becomes more and more. And before you know it, you've got people making decisions to have vehicles that are out of their price points or homes that are out of their price points or, you know, credit card debt. And so I think the biggest struggle is just, it seems like a lot of members, and I'm sure this uh, holds true across the banking environment as well with their customers, seem to say, I, I deserve to have that. I want it, and I'm going to figure out a way to get it. How do, you, how do you help members make smart financial decisions, and how do you, how do you get through that sense of entitlement and, and let people know that maybe that they shouldn't have the, the fancy car or the fancy house? You know, we start with having a, a good dialogue with the member about what their definition of wealth is and where they would like to land on, the, on that spectrum. And, and some people are different. You know, they measure wealth by different, um, different successes or, or, or markers, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so once we have a better understanding of where they want to land, then we kind of back into the dialogue. But the dialogue has some elements that are always the same regardless of where they want to land, and that is – you know, you've got to understand FICO score, and, and although that continues to be massaged, the reality of it is it is so prevalent in society, even, you know, extending past uh, the credit uh, application, um, you know, getting jobs, uh, insurance companies, cell phone companies, the landlords, et cetera, that we, we really camp out there on, you know, as we talk with members, they'll say, well, I didn't get this apartment. I don't know why have some dialogue and we see their credit, we can say, we probably know why the landlord had a better, you know, more qualified applicant or maybe the same with a job. So we, we really focus on that psycho element. And then we focus on the compounding effect of money. And I know it's, again, somewhat elementary, but we, we, we peel off some of those myths about how hard it is to save money. And we show what compounding looks like. And, and we start setting some, some pro forma type, um, um, analysis up for the member to say, if you do this, this often and this frequent at this interest rate, this is what it looks like at one year, three year, five year. And, you know, we understand life happens and you may have to tap into some of that savings, but get them, you know, trying to get the member to really think about wealth accumulation and not being necessarily a number, but a, but a comfort level. And then how each one of those entitlement decisions impacts both that accumulation of wealth as well as what your, the potential impact of your FICO score will be. Can you think of a, a, a member success story, maybe one person that you've gotten through to um, that's especially, uh, especially memorable to you? Yeah, and there's actually quite a few uh, over my career, but um, recently we had a, a gentleman come in, and it was um, he, he was working with one of our loan officers at one of our um, branches that really focuses on financial literacy. And I just happened to be moonlighting over there for a couple of days, hanging out with the staff. And so I got to meet the guy. And we sat down with him, and his truck payment was actually, with us, was starting to track a little off course. And he wasn't more than 30 days, but it was when I asked for the file, and, you know, and they brought it up on the computer for me. 
it looked like we made a really strong credit decision. I felt very comfortable with where the loan officer and the underwriter was, but there was something missing to it. And so when we sat down and had the dialogue that we're talking about, we really started laying out the guy's FICO score with him showing. We found out there were a couple constraints that the member had that were he didn't fully disclose at the time we made the credit decision. And I don't know that it would have changed our credit decision, but what it allowed us to do is to take a deeper dive into who he was and bring his wife into the picture. And there were, and when we combined the two, we were able to restructure their debt load. They were under-leveraging assets, essentially, paying exorbitant interest rates on credit cards. And we were able to restructure them and put them on about a 40-month window to be debt-free, but also free up about $400 a month in their monthly budget. Wow. And that took the pressure off not only our car loan, but it took the pressure off them in life in general. And it was one of those times where there was just a genuine, I think, appreciation the member had that we were there, took the time. You could just see it in their face and their body language, the sense of relief that they had. But also now they really realize we can be debt-free and kind of change the trajectory of how we live um, if we can stay committed to this plan for about 40 months. And so just one of those really cool opportunities to see someone where a few hundred dollars made a lot of sense. Um, and at the same time, if I could throw in a second one, mm-hmm. we had a member at the very same time, one of our high net worth members that, that I used to bank when I was in production a lot, so I still interact with him quite a bit. And he was moving from a $400,000 mortgage in the country club community here in town to a much higher end private community where he was moving into about a $900,000 home. And he had six six loans, one with us and four with other local lenders. And individually, each one of those loans was actually a really good loan in terms of the rate and the term at the time he took it out. But once again, under-leveraging some of the assets. And we did a little bit of consolidating, restructuring. The rate environment has been very, um, you know, advantageous to being able to do that and, and move some – some, uh, you know, what started off as a $2,000 a month payment, but the trailing balance was only eleven grand at this point. And we were able to just put some stuff together. We actually caused him to be able to go from a $400,000 home to a $900,000 home, and his monthly output went down $1,100 a month. Wow. And, he, and he, we were at lunch, and he said, Chuck, why have none of my other lenders told me about this? And I said, why would they? You were paying them nice interest rate, and they were loving it, and everybody was happy. It just takes a disinterested third party to step back and analyze all of it. And, you know, and he just said, there's nobody else I'm going to bank with ever again. And this is a person in the community that's quite well plugged in. And so, you know, he's going to obviously tell people about us. So, you know, you had at both ends of the spectrum. You had someone who was a little more socioeconomically challenged that you could just see that relief and then you had someone who is affluent and, and quite well off, but at the same time still just needed a little bit of professional coaching to make a major impact. Yeah. That seems like such a good fit, I mean, being a lender and then also uh, someone who focuses a lot on financial literacy. Have, have you noticed a difference through your financial literacy efforts? Have they had a, an effect on, like, your delinquency and, and charge-offs? You know, I don't know that they've necessarily driven it down. I will tell you that we probably have been able to operate in a space a little more aggressively, and we've seen no change in delinquency and charge-offs. And so, um, you know, I think any advancements we're making by way of educating people 
maybe is being offset a little bit by the fact that we're getting a, a much broader reach than we than most financial institutions are comfortable with. Um, but from an individual success story, we have folks come in all the time that'll sit down with our lenders and they'll say, you know, they'll they'll say, well, why are you delinquent with this particular lender? And this particular lender will, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, you guys are the one who takes care of me. And so we know that they understand that we're going to be here and be kind of a trusted advisor with them. And then we bring back the reality of what those decisions are doing to their overall situation. And I think just having someone that they can feel like they can come to and, and be transparent with um, helps out. And so I've never, you know, it's such an organic thing, financial literacy. I've never been able to necessarily tie it to some coefficient in delinquency and charge-off. But, again, I just know we operate in a space that is, we're taking bites out of the payday lending environment and trying to put someone, you know, pull people out of that and put them into more mainstream banking. And obviously that's a dicier area. And we've been operating with similar, with a steady, even delinquency and charge off for probably the last 10 years. Can you tell me about the, uh, the Frenchtown Financial Opportunity Center that you helped create, um, how it came about and, and what the center does? Yeah, that's a... Um, there is a rather large, predominantly African-American church here in Tallahassee that is adjacent to what is called the Frenchtown community. And that community is a community that was once a very vibrant African-American community before uh, desegregation. But with desegregation, you had some urban flight and, and some of the affluence moved into the suburbs. And then what you get left with, you know, some 40, 50 years later is a little more of an inner city type uh, traditional component as we know it today. So we've got some socioeconomic depression in there, um, very little ownership, a lot of folks rent, multiple uh, employment, uh, you know, people working two and three jobs, a lot of single family incomes. So the, the church has been for years and so is the community wanting to revitalize that area. And it's not a real big area geographically, but it's kind of some of the stuff in our community that's happening is there's revitalization going all around it, but it kind of stops there. And one thing that's been missing since before the desegregation was a financial institution within that community. So um, right before the, the, the mortgage meltdown in 08-09 timeframe, this church had, had made application to the NCUA for their own charter to start a credit union. As the mortgage market begins to melt down, as I understand from the church, the NCUA kind of shelved issuing new charters for some a period. Mm -hmm. And so they took that as kind of a sign that maybe we need to step back from this initiative. Well, then we, we suffer through the, the, the recession and things start ticking back up. And, and through a chance meeting I had through, uh, through an event at FSU, um, the director of the small business um, uh, development Council office uh, here in Tallahassee said, could I talk to you about this construct? And, and I said, sure. And so we sat down and we talked, and it made a lot of sense from our credit perspective, but we've got a branch not far enough away to really warrant another office. And so I said, hey, look, if we were another couple miles down the road, this would make complete sense, but it doesn't really. But I, if I got a partner to share in the expenses and I and I had some way to really make this thing more collaborative, I think I can make it work. 
So we turn to one of our uh, very natural collaborative partners, which is Envision Credit Union. They're the former teacher's credit union here in Tallahassee and been around about the same period of time as us. Our core values align. We own another QSO together that does indirect lending, and we've participated commercial loans with them for many years now. And because they're an education-based credit union, we're an education-based credit union, we just really um, kind of get one another and have had great collaborative efforts. So I went to them, pitched the idea. They liked it. The chairman of their board is um, someone who particularly liked it because he's been very civic-minded for a long time in our community. And so we went back and said, hey, we can do this. And the church said, well, here's a bonus. We used CRA money years ago when we thought we were going to get this charter. And we've already built a full-service branch and sitting in a little strip center not far from their the church facility. They opened the doors, and I've driven by this building a million times, never paid any attention to it. I walked in. I had a teller counter. I had glass. I had raised floors for servers, a spot for an ATM, a telecom room, loan officer's offices, fully furnished, fresh paint. They had already built it out, and they said, we'll give this to you in kind wow. if you'll run your branch out of it. So it just really came together really, really in a neat fashion. And so in June of 2016, we officially launched the Frenchtown Financial Opportunity Center, which we call FFOC. And the emphasis has been, it's a shared branch. Um, It's run by FSU credit union staff through a management services agreement with Envision. And then we partner on the marketing and the financial literacy initiatives. The members are given, if you walk in and and you're seeking a membership with the it's a QSO, and so FFOC is just the brand. Behind it is we determine which credit union you, you naturally would fit with, and when there's when you when you don't naturally fit, it's just one to Envision, one to FSU, and we keep parity that way. Mm-hmm. And then our programs are so similar that we're able to you know be able to make kind of a, a mass offering, and then they still kind of plug in real well with either credit union. And then the goal is really for them to do their banking business at the at the center. But they're eligible to obviously use any one of the respective credit unions branches or any shared branching outlet, you know, in the country at that point. But the whole key is to give Frenchtown, the community, something that they can own. It's their own brand. It's tied to the heritage of the community. Um, and the emphasis, particularly because of the socioeconomic status of this community, is on undoing a lot of uh, myths, as we talked about, that that people didn't understand or they found their way into the payday lending. I think there's eight payday lenders in this community. Wow. And so because of really, you know, I, I own some of this as a credit union executive because of banking and credit unions, you know, really not necessarily making that a, a huge focus for a lot of reasons. Um, sometimes you just get these areas where the, the payday lenders slide in under our radar. And before you know it, that's who's banking these folks with check cashing and, and title loans. And so uh, it, for us, we've kind of, our focus has been you can break that cycle, come in, let us provide all this financial literacy, let us provide a couple alternative products to help you uh, get out of it. But at the same time, while avoiding the risk associated with, um, you know, banking in this environment. Yeah, we've said a couple times, um, I've said it, I think, maybe in more than one interview, is that we feel like if two credit unions with combined assets of about $700 million or so in Tallahassee could make an impact on a relatively small community 
Uh, Tallahassee's not a real big community anyway. Imagine if you had a couple billion-dollar credit unions in a major metropolitan area come together with a similar initiative and what kind of impact that might have on on a on a you know socioeconomically depressed community. So what are some typical loans that the center makes? Well, you know, it's really I think it's it's a really been a very diverse uh spectrum which has been great. It, we do have the payday lending flare. We've got a lot of $500 emergency loans which we've always had in credit union land. Usually that is the avenue to open up a deeper dive with the person, and we realize they need the $500 emergency loan probably because they're maxed out with the payday lender. Mm-hmm. And then we find out what's going on with the payday lending, and we try to you know, begin to move them out of that environment. We've got your standard fare of, of car loans. Uh, we do have GPS lending, and so we've introduced that, and that's across all of our credit union branches. But, but as it pertains to a higher risk, we sometimes are able to use that product to mitigate against that a little bit. And again, the, the the loan closing itself takes a few minutes, while the financial literacy takes about 45. So we really focus not on the paperwork and the the payment, but the all the rationale behind it. And then the community has been really generous to support the measure, and we've actually done several large commercial loans from thriving small businesses, many minority-owned small businesses within this community that said, we'd like to see this measure be successful, and, you know, we're, we'd like to, to move our, you know, the real estate that we operate our business out of over to you or, you know, an operating account with a line of credit. So we've been able to actually get a good little bit of commercial business out of it to kind of round out the consumer side as well. What's, what effect do you think the center has had on, on the lives of the Frenchtown residents? You know, it's kind of very interesting. We have two marketing professors that I have a relationship with at Florida State University that have been doing We've been conducting a survey, and they're doing a longitudinal study for us. And it's very preliminary, the data we're getting back in, because we had to get the data set big enough for it to make some sense. And they do financial literacy studies throughout um, the country with various peers that they work with in the academic world. And we've been benchmarking this against what we see in other initiatives that are not necessarily similar to this, but they're financially, they have a financial literacy component. And what we're seeing is this sense of, um, we're using the word trusted advisor um, around here, is that I think we're seeing the impact is we're providing folks a, someone that they can come to as a coach uh, or, or an advisor to just bounce financial decisions off of that are, you know, disinterested third party, unbiased. Um, and we're seeing in the survey the the impact is when they this is about a hundred and twenty question survey and when we benchmark where they started and then we're going through a series of uh, every six months or so or actually I'm sorry, every six weeks or so where they're at, those that respond to the subsequent surveys, we're seeing a, a what the statisticians are telling me is a sizable uptick in relief, basically. There's a relief uh, of financial stressors associated with the fact that now when I have to make a financial decision, I've got someone I can rely on as counsel. Um, and at the same time, we're some of the restructuring that we're able to do provides a, a practical relief on a monthly basis. And so we're seeing this really neat uptick uh, in just kind of the overall financial well-being, both mental and 
transactional of the member. Mm-hmm. And the data is still very preliminary, and we're still kind of crunching it. And, and as, as it would go with academics and status, you know, uh, statistics people, um, the, I look at the uptick, and it seems marginal being a numbers guy, but apparently in the world of statistics, it can that their marginal is significant uh, depending on the data set and the number of questions you ask and whatnot. And they're very excited about what they're seeing. So how might this effort evolve in the future? Any new types of services that you plan to offer with the center? Yeah, you know, we've, we've talked quite a bit about duplicating it as, it as it continues to hit sustainability. We're very close financially to being sustainable. Um, just from the, the loan portfolio that we've built and the deposit base, we've said this can be a model. There are more than just this community in Tallahassee that are, are quite underbanked. Um, and there's a big presence of payday lending. So we see that being, you know, one part of our kind of future efforts. Another part is <clears throat> to really look at the payday lending model. We've been kicking around the NCUA's guidance on the payday lending alternatives, and and we, there's several credit unions out there that are doing a remarkable job in their communities. So we've been looking at some of their programs, what's working, what's not working, and I think one of the programs that will come out, I'm sure, in the – spring uh, of next year because we've got some design constructs is maybe something a little more right now right now our payday lending alternative is really just a small loan that we underwrite by similar standards and within similar terms of our our mainstream offering but looking at the payday lending alternative and how that might um, play into it we're also having some discussion in, in many of these communities but particularly in Frenchtown there's a real demand for affordable housing, and we've got some groups here in Tallahassee that are behind some initiatives to provide the product, the housing, and then the, there's the financing component behind it, and there's financial literacy curriculums that are contemplated as being baked into a lease with the option to buy construct, and we're on the forefront of those conversations right now to see is there a way to provide the financing for the group that is building the facilities on a commercial level, but then also have a conduit for the actual homeowner after they've been a after they've been in the, the, the unit, you know, leasing it and going through this financial curriculum, can we get them to a place where either a, a an FHA product or maybe even a portfolio product makes sense for both the credit union and the member to get something uh, to actually own the home at that point. And what advice would you offer credit unions who might consider doing something similar to what you've, you've done? You know, um, I think I two things. One is I underestimated, I think, a little bit of the, the community, um, and so I would encourage any credit union to maybe immerse themselves a little deeper into it. And what I mean by that is there are certain cultural deals. There are certain um, just philosophical bents. There are centers of influence within some of these communities that, with greater alignment, I think, provide for greater attraction. As we identified those kind of as we were going, we saw better and better traction, so maybe a little more due diligence on our end, and we could have come out of the gates a little bit harder. Um, so just really, I think, understanding the community. But then the second part is, to not be scared. If you look at this, and, and I, I've said this to some peers, if you look at this on paper, the number is red right now. It was never intended to be a money maker. It was really intended to be a credit union with doing what credit unions need to do and should do and what we've always been about. And so it was almost like a revisiting of our roots, if you will. Um, 
But, you know, we looked at it and said, let's not see this as a profit center. Let's not even see it as a break-even initially. Let's build bacon some pro forma stuff to get there. But let's really look at it to see what kind of what kind of game changer it can be within the community. And then in our more conventional branching environment, we'll, we'll be the more conventional financial institution that will offset this um, initiative. And by just kind of taking those blinders off and saying, you know, let's not let the, let's not let the, the project or the pro forma dictate what we do. Um, let's let our heart and what the mission of the credit union industry is all about dictate it. We've really just been able to see it move forward very organically, and uh, and we see that red number very soon is going to be as a, a break even, and then of course we've got pro forma for where we can actually uh, make a profit in it. But you know we we went into it for the long haul, understanding that there was a mission behind it long before the transaction. We're real proud of. Frenchtown, the same financial literacy that we do there, we do within the scope of all our branches, and we have for a long time. We've made it a point really to make that a focus. Um, our board has said being a credit union that represents an institute of higher learning that we should come alongside and mirror their efforts, and so we've made it a point just to kind of be considered a resource to the university as a from the financial literacy perspective, which has obviously led to all of the speaking and all the presentations and then quite a few partnerships with some of the different colleges at FSU. So um, so it's just something we're kind of passionate about here. I've got a great team. Um, it's kind of nice to have a university in your backyard because we can cherry pick a lot of folks that come in and start as a, like, much like myself, start as a part-time teller, but they get their degrees. And if they're business-minded and we like them, we can kind of offer them a job and pull them in, and they've already got a couple years under their belt with us. So, um, and, and they kind of early on get indoctrinated into this financial literacy piece, even from being on the teller line. So, um, so it's just something that we do around here. It's kind of where we've fallen into step, and it works for us, and, and we like it. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you'd like to learn more about Adcock and the more than 50 other credit union rock stars this year, visit news.cuna.org slash rockstar.